Uh, let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 13. You know that we're studying through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. We're in chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 27 this morning. Our topic, Jeremiah is told to wear a sash around his waist to symbolize God's relationship with the nation of Judah. The title of our message, One Man's Sash is Another Man's Typology. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. And we've definitely, Lord, sensed and been drawn into your presence. Always reminded every Sunday morning and every time the church meets, Lord, that uh, picture that you give of yourself in the book of the Revelation, where you are walking in the midst of the candlesticks, walking in the midst of the church. And Lord, we know that by your spirit, you are present here this morning, and that your desire is to reveal yourself. As Hillary said, Lord, we see through a glass dimly. One day we'll see you face to face. But by your spirit, you can illuminate, you can uh, bring uh, a focus, Lord, through your word so that we can see you more clearly. And that's what I pray that you would do today. Help us as we work through these verses, Lord, obviously written for the nation of Judah at a very difficult time, but just as applicable to us, Lord, today in the 21st century here in Hanford as we seek to walk with you and know you in a deeper way. And so bless our time in your word, we pray. And those who agreed said... Amen. Who are you wearing? That's easily the most asked and answered question on any red carpet. The celebrities are all decked out in gowns and suits. The ladies adorned with borrowed but beautiful and costly accessories. When they answer Vera Wang or Versace or Louis Vuitton or Gucci, it's a huge moment of recognition for that designer. You might be surprised to learn that the prophet Jeremiah was fashion conscious As he went about Jerusalem and the surrounding cities, he wore a linen sash around his waist. We would say that he was styling for his day. There was no red carpet, but if someone had asked Jeremiah, who are you wearing, he would have said Yahweh. You see, God had told him to wear the sash to communicate a message to Judah, saying in verse 11, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so have I caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. God thought of his people as a beautiful adornment that the other nations would see and ask, who are you wearing? To which they would answer Yahweh, thus giving a testimony to the true God who was reaching out to save them. As you read through the New Testament, you come to a passage, it's Titus 2.10, that says of us as believers that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. God still thinks in terms of our adorning him and the gospel. Instead of adorning the Lord, the Jews distorted him to the surrounding nations, and God had to discipline them. Let's not make that mistake. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. You adorn the gospel, do it with praise. Number two, you adorn the gospel, don't do it with pride. Let's take a look, first of all, in the first 11 verses about adorning the gospel with praise. Now, this sash that clings to the waist of a man, it's an article of clothing that goes by several different names in various Bible translations. The New International Version calls it a linen belt. The New American Standard Bible calls it a linen waistband. The New Revised Standard Bible calls it a linen loincloth. The New English Bible calls it an apron. In the King James Version, it's a linen girdle. 
Some of the modern guys say that it's a pair of shorts. I have a hard time with that. I don't really want to think of Jeremiah going around with board shorts or cargo pants. Uh, so the best understanding is that it's a long linen sash about a handbreadth wide that could be wrapped around the waist. It could uh, have a purpose, but it was mostly decorative. And so in verse 1, thus the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist. Don't put it in any water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. And so Jeremiah went sash shopping. It, it, you, know, he's, you never know what you're going to be into as a prophet of the Lord. You, you wake up one morning, and you're, you're in your devotions, and you're thinking, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And he says, Jeremiah, I want you to go shopping for a sash. You ever, you ever have anything strange happen in your devotions? And you just, you and I would automatically think, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Uh, but God, he comes to these guys, and I think he still comes today in some very simple things and tells us what to do on a daily basis. And Jeremiah said, I want you to go buy a sash. And whenever these prophet guys did anything, it was a big deal. God was always using props to speak in parables and figures through them to his people. And so though the people didn't like the message of Jeremiah, they were aware of him and his doings, and whenever he would do something unusual, it was kind of frightening. There's some passages in the scriptures, especially when Samuel, remember when Samuel comes to anoint David as the next king, everybody in that village is freaked out. You didn't want to see the prophet come to your village because you had no idea what that meant. It, it could be terrifying, the message he would bring. And so everybody's watching Jeremiah, and instead of delivering a message outside the temple, he goes and he buys a linen sash. Now, either Jeremiah didn't normally wear a sash, or he bought one that was particularly fancy. It seems to me that the Lord was telling uh, him to make a statement, a fashion statement that would be noticeable around town. Commentators are stressed about what is meant by do not put it in water. I think they overcomplicate it. Seems to me that the Lord was telling Jeremiah to not launder it. Just wear it and then keep wearing it day after day without laundry, uh, without cleaning it. Now, when we would take our short-term missions trips to the Philippines in the 80s, I would sweat so much over there that my shirt would develop salt patterns. Uh, it would just, you'd sweat, and then you'd get into some place that was not as warm, and your sweat would dry, and then you'd look down, and there'd just be lines all over from, we'd take salt tablets, and we were just dying over there. By the end of the day, well, I, I can't tell you how many shirts I just threw away. I know a pastor, he's a friend of mine, who left all of his underwear in the Philippines. He just, he didn't even want to bring them back with him. He just left them, and, and we joke with him about having him, his donation to the Philippines, you know, and stuff. But it just, it's a climate, you know, just we're not used to it. We weren't dressed right. You're wearing, you know, a polo shirt, and it was just disgusting. It was gross. Let's just say I could barely wear a shirt for a whole day, let alone day after day. The Lord was letting Jeremiah know that his new fashion accessory was going to get dirty, and then dirtier, and then it was going to be filthy as he wore it over time without washing it. And so you'd see Jeremiah. I mean, you see, you know, if I came to church, I was going to come to church dressed in a sash, but we don't do that. And then I thought, well, I'll just wear dirty, filthy clothes. And I said, well, we don't do that either. And then I gave up all of that symbolism. And I thought, I'm not Jeremiah. It wouldn't work anyway. So, but there are churches that do that, you know, where there's kind of like a drama thing going on. 
I guess I could have wore cargo shorts. But anyway, so uh, the people would see Jeremiah and they'd, wow, he's wearing a sash. It's kind of a beautiful sash. I had my eyes on that sash, but Jeremiah bought it. And then he'd wear it the next day. And sooner or later, it would start to sweat and he would get it soiled. He would drop spaghetti sauce on it, you know, those kinds of things. Until you started to think, what's with Jeremiah not washing his sash? And so God is communicating to them, and they don't know it. In verse 3, it says, The word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Now take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist. Arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in a rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. After some time had transpired and after the folks had noticed Jeremiah wasn't laundering his sash, he was told to secretly take it to a river and stash it in a hole in a rock. Now I said a river because we're really not sure it was in fact the Euphrates River that's in Babylon. Language scholars point out that in Hebrew, the spelling for Euphrates and Para are identical, and Para was a village just outside of Anathoth, which was Jeremiah's hometown. The trip to Babylon was a 700-mile round trip. And as we see, Jeremiah would have had to make this trip two times. And Babylon was kind of a hostile entity. And so it's actually doubtful that he went all the way to Babylon. Unlikely. And the symbolism of what God is doing here works without him having to go all the way to Babylon. No one saw Jeremiah do this. At least that's what I get from the command that he would hide the sash. Afterward, it would be obvious as he walked about that his once fashionable, then filthy sash was gone. Now, it came to pass in verse 6, after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug it, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing, to which we might comment, duh, but hold on, here comes the application. In verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. It's a figure, it's a typology to preach to God's people. Through Jeremiah, God pictured himself a man wearing a beautiful linen sash. The sash was his one outstanding fashion accessory. It's the one thing that adorned him. Israel and Judah were to adorn the Lord like a sash in that when the other nations of the world looked at them, they'd see beauty and holiness and grace and mercy in their representation of the nature and character of God. Because of their sin, however, they looked more and more like a sash that was soiled, getting worse every day until finally the sash was removed, no longer being worn by its owner. Where did the soiled sash go? It was taken away by its owner to a river hidden in a rock there to further decay until it finally was no good as a sash anymore. Thus would God hide his people by the rivers of Babylon so they would recognize and then repent of their sin. And so God was talking to the people directly through Jeremiah. We've seen his verbal messages, but he was also always giving them 
pictures and types. And this sash, beautiful symbolism, taken away to the river and hidden just as God would take away his people to Babylon for their 70-year captivity. Now, the Jews did adorn the Lord, just not the way he desired and deserved. He intended them to adorn him for renown, for praise, and for glory. Renown. We use that word when we talk about someone making a name for himself. The idea is that the Jews were to be great PR people, spreading the knowledge of the Lord, his holiness and his salvation. They were to make a name for him among the nations so that when other nations came into contact with the Jews, they they thought, who is this Lord that you serve? How wonderful he must be. How magnificent he must be. They, They were his advance men, his public relations men. For praise seems to mean to elicit or to call forth praise. In other words, through their representation of the Lord, the Jews were to elicit the praises of the lost for the God of Israel who was seeking to reveal himself to them. They would see the beauty of the Lord and be drawn to him. They would know that the God of Israel was praiseworthy for what he could offer. What does the Lord offer? Well, so many things, but uh, primarily, I think, is the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that precious? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive sins. And forgiving sin is really kind of bedrock for the human race. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against all knowledge. And they brought ruin into the human race. And then the Lord said, I will come. I will come as a man, the God-man, and I will deal with the issue of sin. I will make it so that I can forgive sin and restore fellowship. And then there's so many other things as well. But uh, imagine, you know, uh, you're a a, a Jew and you're, you're serving the Lord and you come into these pagan nations with all of their terrible customs and child sacrifice and immoral activities. And, and though it's, you know, uh, it's, though it's pagan and weird, there's a part of every man that is maybe trying to reach out to a God and say, how can I get rid of this guilt? How can I get rid of this worry that when I die, there's a judgment and all? And then the Jew would come along and say, we can show you the way. There is a God who forgives sin. He justifies you on the basis of your belief in him, on your faith in him. It's praiseworthy. It's amazing. And this is what they were to communicate. For glory is the third way they were to represent God as his sash. In Matthew 5, 16, we read this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and therefore glorify your Father who is in heaven. For glory then means that by attitudes and inactions, the Jews would always be pointing away from themselves and to the Lord. Since we are to adorn the gospel, these same three words, renown, praise, and glory, they are just as applicable to us. Am I good PR for Jesus? What do people think Jesus is like based upon my overall presentation to them? Wow, that's a searching question. Think about your own life and what kind of a PR person you are what kind of an advanced man or woman you are, what would a person say Jesus Christ is like based upon my representation 
of him. It, I'm not saying anyone would ever be perfect, obviously. It's a challenging question. It's a reminder. It's that, oh, people are looking at me. They're reading me like a living epistle. In, in a sense, we see Jesus representing the Father, and now people see us representing Jesus. As for praise, it's not my praising him, but others seeing that he is praiseworthy because of what he's done for me and what he therefore wants to do for them. And so for praise doesn't mean that I, I sing the loudest or that I have the most exuberant worship. It means that when people actually study my life, maybe they get past the PR and they say, okay, let's take a deeper look. They see that the God that I believe and love is praiseworthy for what he's done, for what he's delivered me from, for what he's promised to do to make me into the image of his own son, Jesus Christ, to perform a good work in me and bring it to completion. How he's delivered me from so many things and given me the filling of his Holy Spirit and all, and it becomes praiseworthy. For glory means I better not get in the way of all that, taking any credit for myself. Instead, there better be something supernatural about how I live, something heavenly. And so initially, I, I mean, it's, I hope it doesn't sound carnal, but I'm a PR person for the Lord. And then people look at me and they think, okay, I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll check out this Lord of yours. And then as they begin to check it out on a deeper level, they think, man, that's praiseworthy. You mean you were that and now you're this and you're going through that and you have joy? This, uh, this would floor me, but you seem to have peace and, uh, that passes all understanding. And then when they begin to really get deep into it, all you're doing is pointing them to another person who you say is the real reason for all that, and that is Jesus Christ, who came as the God-man, died on the cross, and then rose from the dead. And you're not willing even to take any part of the glory yourself. You don't say, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I just have such a great personality. I just, you know, it rolls off like water off a duck, you know. And, and, and you're always in trouble. You know, when people want to, when they want to ascribe to you things that can only be the Lord, you, you don't want that, believe me. And so it's kind of, and we sometimes get stuck there. We, we get through the PR part and we get into the praiseworthy part, but then, you know, we start thinking that we, it's a partnership. God's helping me. Oh, wow. God better be, as Hillary said, ruining you. It's got to be all Jesus and none of you. John the Baptist, who Jesus said, man, this is a great man. He's a great man. The thing that he said, I must decrease. He must increase. And so when you finally get a person to the point where they recognize that your life is praiseworthy, then you have to point them to the Lord in a very definite and direct way. Start thinking about the statement you make as an adornment, as a fashion accessory to the Lord. We're pretty down-to-earth folk here in the real California. Right? This is the real California, right? Not really all that fashion conscious. Still, each of us has our own fashion style, and it makes a statement. And we have our own, as Gail Irwin would say, Jesus style. Now, he means the Jesus style that Jesus had, but we each also have a Jesus style. Once you tell somebody, I'm a Christian, then they look and you say, so what's your Jesus style? How are you wearing the Lord? 
Because there too you're making a statement by your walk and through your talk. Now, the rest of the verses, you adorn the gospel, don't do it with pride. Several times in this section, the Lord points to the pride of his people, sinful, selfish pride as a root of their problem. As we run through the remaining verses, we'll get some idea of what constitutes pride. So verse 12, therefore you shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. Some of you say amen, but hold on. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And then I'll dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord, I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but I will destroy them. Now, this phrase, every bottle shall be filled with wine, it's just a saying that the Jews used to indicate that a good harvest was being gathered, and thus every bottle that was empty, every wineskin, would now be able to be filled. And so if you went down to the local market or, you know, whatever, they would say, hey, the harvest looks like it's coming in. Oh, yeah, every bottle is going to be filled this year. Now, the Jews would therefore ridicule Jeremiah as if he wasn't telling them anything they didn't already know. And so here was this prophet who was saying all these amazing things. Then he's told to wear this sash as a kind of a metaphorical, typological message. And then God says, now I want you to go out and just say what everybody normally says during the harvest. Uh, and, and, you know, Jeremiah, he's a man of like passions with us, he's got to think, Lord, people are going to ridicule me for that message. I go about, and they're thinking, okay, Jeremiah, we don't like your message, but we're going to have to listen to it. And you say, well, every bottle will be filled with wine. What, what, What are you talking about? What kind of prophecy is that? Maybe you should go get a a degree in prophecy because that's just something people say. It doesn't really minister at all. But it was deep. It was really deep if you listen to it. They would ridicule him, but the message was that the harvest was really one of the Lord's judgment against them. The Babylonians would come and the Jews would be terrified, and the picture here is that they would run about running into each other like drunken men trying to escape the judgment that was coming. You know, God is not... uh, He's not silent at all. In 40 years, he tells them and gives them all kinds of pictures about what was going to happen. The pride working in their hearts here was that they were living harvest to harvest, focusing on material things, while the spiritual was being neglected, or in their case, even rejected. If our approach to life is mostly material, if it's mostly physical, if that's what we spend most of our time doing and thinking about, then it's pride on our part. Because God has created us spiritual beings. The outward man is perishing. The inward man needs to be renewed day after day. We live in a physical world, it's a material world, but our focus and our intent needs to be set on heaven. Our affections need to be on heaven where Jesus is seated. And so each of us has to balance out every day and for the whole of our life how much contact we have with this world on a material and physical basis and how much emphasis we put on the heavenly. And the tendency, of course, is, since the physical seems more real to us, even though it's not, is to overemphasize the physical and material and always put the spiritual kind of on the back burner, believing one day we'll get to that. And we need to be careful uh, that we're not making that mistake. 
Verse 15, hear and give ear. Don't be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. Your walk with the Lord is depicted as an ascent along a narrow mountain path. You need light so you don't stumble and fall. We had a men's retreat years ago up in Mineral King, and somebody had the bright idea to go up to one of those high lakes and uh, fish. And uh, I'm not really a hiker, uh, as you can tell. And it was uh, three miles of switchbacks up in the high mountain. Is, it's just not something I was cut out for. Uh, and uh, it was September. And when we finally got up to this lake, beautiful lake, gorgeous lake. Every time you threw your line in, you caught an eight-inch brown trout because no one else goes up there. <laughs> and then just as we got there and caught a few fish, it started to snow. Well, now the trail is only like a foot wide in some places, and we got lost before it started snowing. And I thought, this is it. In fact, I, I've admitted this before. I cried halfway down that trail <laughs> because I thought, I'm going to die I'm going to die on the trail to the Mosquito Lakes in Mineral King because I'm an idiot. And uh, somehow we did make it back, and uh, people said, why are your eyes so red? And I said, oh, snow. The snow has been hitting me in the eye. But so you want to be able to see your path. Uh, the pride here is thinking the path is much broader with lots of detours that you can indulge in along the way. It's not. You need the light of God's word. You need his lamp at your feet. Verse 17, if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Knowing God as the great shepherd, Jeremiah saw the Jews as the Lord's flock taken captive. In the sharing of his heart about their sad state of affairs, we're reminded that if we would adorn Jesus as a prerequisite to all of the other things we're talking about, we must always look out upon the whole world of men with compassion. Jeremiah, a chapter earlier, was told that the men of Judah and even his own family were plotting to kill him. And yet he still had a shepherd's heart. He still looked upon them as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, um, you know, one thing I'm painfully aware of in my own life uh, for many reasons, uh, because I got saved later in life, is just tremendous amounts of ingrained prejudice. You don't think, you, no one wants to admit they're biased or prejudiced or bigoted, but man, I am, uh, except for the Lord. And so Jeremiah says, you know, he has a heart moment here where he says, I see all of these people, they're trying to kill me, even my own family wants me dead. They're just lost sheep. They don't know any better. They need the Lord. And so we need to maintain that compassion. Verse 18, say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. This was a prophecy, both King Jehoiachin and his wife, Nehushta, there's a good girl name there for you guys that are still pregnant, Nehushta. I always like to point out these, you know, these really cool Bible names that nobody is using. Uh, you know, Nehushta is a be, you know, one of the better ones. <laughs> Implied is that their rule was bringing them glory rather than bringing glory to the Lord. Humble yourself. 
so the Lord can be exalted. Jesus saves, not our talent or wisdom or intellect or abilities. No matter what God has told you to do, how he has gifted you, where he has placed you, humble yourself and let the Lord be exalted. Verse 19, the cities of the south will be shut up. No one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall wholly be carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where's the flock that was given to you? your beautiful sheep. The Jews had established fortifications in the south against invasion, but they would not stop the advancing armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you like all the, you know, whatever kind of movies you like, uh, whatever, you know, era of time, there's always some kind of an impregnable fortress, some place that can't be conquered until somebody comes along and says, yeah, I can conquer that. I can figure that out. Whether it's Troy and the Trojan horse or, you know, whatever it is, there's always a way in. There's always a way to conquer. And so no fortification was good enough to, you know, keep these armies away. We try to fortify our lives. It's just human to do that. And then we trust in those fortifications. Health and wealth are the two most prominent fortifications that we try to build. And both of those come into play as we get to retirement age, and then we think that we're going to have the health to enjoy the wealth that we've managed to squirrel away. Now, this isn't an anti-financial seminar. I, I, I'm not having a wrestling match with Dave Ramsey over this, you know. I mean, we're, we're for good financial planning. But I think there's a general idea in the world that I need to, you know, prepare for my retirement. I'm banking on the fact that when I get there, I'm going to actually be healthy enough to enjoy the money that I've put away. That's fine as long as we don't ignore the furthering of the kingdom of God along the way. Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then you think about the other things on the earth. So just as a, as a general challenge, the word of God says, hey, are you first setting aside for the kingdom of God? Are you first living for the kingdom of God, serving the Lord with all that he's provided for you, your time and your talent and your treasure? And then putting aside as a frugal person for a maybe future that you will have or maybe not because who knows what the future holds. What does it profit to gain the whole world even if you lose your soul? And so seek first the kingdom of God. Otherwise, it's pride. The Lord would, you know, a lot of times, I don't like to think I'm a proud person, but then you get into some specifics and the Lord might come and say, Gene, I see you doing all this planning for your physical future, but you're not planning at all for your spiritual future. That's pride, thinking that you're going to have a future. Because I've only told you to have enough for today and not to worry about tomorrow. And so I think, I think sometimes, you know, there's a frugalness. There's, you know, there's lots of the Proverbs and things that you can quote about planning for tomorrow. I understand that. But I think there's an overemphasis on tomorrows that may never come to us. I get up every day thinking I'm going to live another 20 or 30 or maybe even 40 years. But I have no guarantee that I'll live another five minutes. And so I want to be investing in the things of the kingdom of God. What will you say, verse 21, when he punishes you? 
For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? The Jews were to be separate from the surrounding nations in order to express the wonder and the glory of the Lord. Instead, they adopted the disgusting practices of the surrounding nations. In doing so, they put themselves in submission to those people and their practices because uh, to whomever you yield yourself to that person, you become a slave. You can't serve two masters. Like a woman in labor is a common expression in the Old Testament to describe the unavoidable pain and suffering of God's judgment once it falls upon you. It's a warning to repent before it's too late to stop the consequences of your sin. You know, you can at any time repent of your sin and be forgiven, but sometimes you have to reap the consequences of your sin. There are things that, though you've repented, they can't be undone. It's like Dennis Agajanian sometimes says, you can't unscramble eggs right? He said that years ago, and I thought, what are you talking about? And then I realized that, you know, once it's done, it's done. And God will forgive you, obviously, but what you've done has consequences. Verse 22, and if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. This would be a description of how a prostitute would be treated for her sins, She'd be uncovered and made bare. It describes the backslidden believer as a prostitute pimping himself or herself out to the world when in fact they belong to the Lord. Pride always minimizes our sin. It causes me to become desensitized. I would say, well, I have a little problem in this area, and God would say, you're a prostitute. You're a whore. Whoa, wait a minute. I've tried this in counseling. always with men that are smaller than me. But uh, no, I mean, God, basically, you know, you and I, we do that. We say, well, I, yeah, I've sinned in this area. I, I'm a little, you know, it's just a little sin. And God says, well, that's like, you are like a whore in that area. Oh, well, okay. Verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you may, uh, then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. The Jews were so accustomed to doing evil, that for them to change would seem as impossible as the examples given. If you're not careful and diligent, you become accustomed to doing evil. And that's the world's strategy. It's to, it's to keep hammering you with evil, evil images, evil ideas, so that we become desensitized and we become accustomed to it. And in all of our lives, I bet there's some things that would have really bothered us a few years ago whether we're watching them on television or hearing them or whatever, that we're not quite as sensitive to. It's a really, it's a desensitization. It's a torture, really, that the world does against our soul, and we need to be aware of it. Verse 24, therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Stubble was the broken straw separated from the wheat after the grain had been trampled out by the oxen. Sometimes it was burned as useless. At other times it was just left there to be blown away by the wind from the desert. The point here is that rather than bearing fruit for the Lord, their lives were really only stubble. The mention of being either fruit or stubble reminds me that we will all one day stand before Jesus Christ. When we do, we're going to want to be able to see that we built our lives with precious spiritual materials 
rather than the wood, hay, and stubble of the things of this world. Verse 26, therefore I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe to you, Jerusalem, will you still not be made clean? This last figure is that of an adulteress caught and brought naked to be stoned to death. It's what the law of Moses demanded for that sin. The pride here is thinking your sin won't be found out, that you will somehow get away with it. Even if it isn't exposed, you and I should think of what our sin does to our relationship with the Lord. In, a, in our lucid moments, we understand that it absolutely destroys that relationship. Outwardly, we can be worshiping the Lord, but inwardly, if we're harboring sin, habitual, ongoing sin, though no one may ever find out about it, the Lord is there with us, and it's hindering that relationship with him. That's the nicest thing that we could say about it. God mercifully said to them, will you still not be made clean? This is amazing to me. He says, you people are a bunch of prostitutes. I'm gonna treat you like drunken men. You're gonna run into each other. I'm gonna judge you. I'm gonna uncover you. You're gonna be naked before me like an adulteress. Won't you be made clean? What a beautiful Lord we serve. What an amazing statement. Caught and condemned by their spiritual adultery, God was urging them to repent. Judah is the New Old Testament example of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, where Jesus is ministering and then the Jewish leaders bring a woman caught in adultery naked to Jesus. Remember, you know the story. The law says she should be stoned to death, Jesus. What do you say? And the Lord just busted them. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, I'm all about the law. Let's all be under the law. You want her to be under the law? Sure, great. Let's all be under the law. Anybody here without sin doesn't need to be judged in some way? You pick up a stone, and one by one it says they left because they were all guilty except one person, Jesus Christ. And he looked at her. Woman, where are your accusers? No one accuses me, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go Sin no more. That's the Lord who we serve. That's forgiveness on a scale unbelievable. The whole human race, who among us could cast a stone, really? None of us. And then the Lord would come to us in his grace and say, go and sin no more. You are the Lord's sash. How do you look? Are you just as beautiful and fashionable as when he first put you on? Or have you become soiled from having picked up so much filth from the world? Remember Jesus, when he was washing his disciples' feet, he uh, talked about how he was, you know, you pick up the filth from the world. And then in Ephesians, he, he worked, it, it, the word of God is said to be the washing of the water by the word. And so all of us, I think every time we come to church, every time we come to the word, every time we come to the Lord, there's a little bit of soiling on us, right? I mean, there has to be. We're still dealing with the flesh. God's still revealing sin to us. We're out in the world. We pick up terrible things in the world. And so we are a soiled sash, but... 
the Lord doesn't tell us there's no laundering. He tells us to wash ourselves in the water by the word of God so that we can be made clean, so that we can be cleansed. And so if you're here this morning and there's some stain on your sash, if someone were to look at you and say, who are you wearing? Because it doesn't really smell like God anymore. It doesn't look like God you can be washed by the water of the word of God, restored to that beauty so that you can be a person of renown and praise to his glory. Amen.